At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we step into the new year, we're turning to the book of James for our message series, Live the Truth. In a culture preaching the power of whatever feels right to you, it's time to set aside positive vibes for a truth you can stand on. Join us as we answer James' call to reject the latest feel-good message for a mature faith. misses being here, but he wanted to extend a greeting saying that he misses you and he can't wait to be back with you next Sunday. I got the call late afternoon yesterday that he was sick and wouldn't be here. And as I was prepping all day yesterday and into this morning and really diving into James here and then to come in this morning and be able to listen to that worship and realize that, gosh, that worship set summed up the sermon so beautifully. You can see how at work God is in this church. The pre-chorus of that song, though the storms may come and the winds may blow, I'll remain steadfast. It speaks so much to the things that this church is going through right now. And it says, and let my heart learn. That's a prayer. Let my heart learn. When you speak a word, it will come to pass. That's trust. Trust in an unchanging God. And we'll see that again this morning as well. But my hat is off to uh, an omniscient heavenly father this morning that could set this all up so beautifully it's only him church it's only him in his wisdom that even though sermon series are planned from months ago that it would come so timely into the life of this small community of believers here this morning that's the wisdom of god we as people we may have knowledge we may know things but the wisdom of God weaves it together like that so beautifully. And speaking of, of knowledge, in pop culture, there's a lot of, of things going on. We, we, we live with memes and sound bites and one-liners, and there's one that's running around right now. I've seen it all over the place. I'm a fill-in-the-blank of your occupation, and I know stuff. You know, you can see it. I'm a teacher, and I know stuff. I'm an engineer and I know stuff. I'm an electrician and I know stuff. That's what you see a lot. There's even one, which is obviously to be taken tongue in cheek, that says, I drink and I know stuff. You know, we may think we know a lot more if we're drinking than we actually do. But obviously, it's meant to be funny, but it makes a point. And the fact remains that as our culture exists, we value knowledge. We value knowing things. Knowledge as a premium placed on it in our culture. And I've been able to see that in years past when I used to work on the shop floor as a robot programmer. I had the privilege of being able to work with college interns as they came in and, and learned the trade. They were packed full of head knowledge, these young college interns. When they got to where the actual rubber meets the road on the factory floor, they wanted to employ all this head knowledge. And there was two types of these interns. One type was humble, and they would come in and they would yield to the wisdom of the people who had been doing it for 20 years. And there was another type that would come in like a wrecking ball. I know things, and I want you to know that I know things. And they would use the crazy technical words, I know the kinematic solution for this robot. Don't hurt yourself, kid. After you've been programming for 20 years, you, you sit back and, you know, you're able to teach them 
how to employ that knowledge, not just on one robot, but on a group of 10 robots that are all working together to keep from colliding and smashing and wrecking themselves, or, or how to work smarter rather than harder, how to keep yourself from having to come back and do that same work over and over again. That's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. And wisdom is like that. Like we said, wisdom is the difference between working hard and working smart. But wisdom and knowledge, the difference there can also be the difference between success and failure. It can be the difference on a bigger scale between life and death. It can be the difference, if you bring it back down to our level, between holding your family together and allowing this world to rip it apart. And true biblical wisdom can be the difference between surviving through seasons of suffering or being overwhelmed by those difficulties. And the sad state of us, unfortunately, is wisdom in our culture. Biblical wisdom is extremely rare. So over the next six weeks, we're going to be going through an amazing journey through the book of James. James has been called the proverb of the New Testament. And it's written in order to extend a single invitation to us all. And that's if anybody lacks wisdom, to ask of God. He is the keeper of wisdom, and he gives it generously. This short letter, full of this proverb-like wisdom that James wrote, gives us wisdom to live in a way that honors God and blesses the people around us, regardless of what we are going through in life. It's full of great, challenging statements like, count it all joy when you meet trials and tribulations of various kinds. Statements like, faith without works is dead. Statements like, be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. These are the countercultural ways that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, are to live before a watching world. So let's pull up a chair. Let's pull up a chair for five weeks as we glean this good biblical wisdom from James, as he's so full of great wisdom. And today, we're going to start in. We're going to look at what James has to say about how to handle trials and tribulations in our life. And oh my gosh, is this not timely for our church right now? Perfectly, beautifully ordained by God the Father. And the big idea of our message this morning we're going to see is that mature faith survives seasons of suffering. Now James is a man who has plenty of wisdom. And he's very eager to dispense this wisdom to us. His eagerness and his sense of urgency and, and kingdom-mindedness causes him to be very direct. Have you known a person like that? It's so much to say that they're so direct. Right to the point. And that's James here. He's going to skip the bulk of an introduction in James 1.1, and he's going to go right for the throat of what he wants us to hear. Take a look at 1.1. He starts out his letter, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. That's it. That's his intro. He resists the need to impress us with knowledge. He resists the need to give us his titles or his list of gained experiences or, for goodness sake, to even let us know that he's the half-brother of Jesus. You want to talk about credentials, you think he would have thrown that in there. But he doesn't. Do you see the humility that he's showing there? 
And then he goes on to tell us who he's writing to. It's to Jewish Christians who are now dispersed throughout the Gentile world. They've left their homeland because of intense persecution, and now they're living in foreign lands. And this dispersion happened right after or as a direct result of Stephen's stoning. So James knows firsthand the high price that these Christians are being asked to pay for their faith. And knowing that high price, he knows exactly what encouragement they need to hear. And the first question he's going to answer for them is the question of suffering. Is it possible to survive seasons of intense, undue persecution? See, these trials that they would have received would have felt overwhelming. And it would have likely caused them to question their faith, to fall away from God. And he's kind of coming at it the way the author of Hebrews is, saying, no, Jesus is better. Hold fast to the faith, and let me show you how. And that's what we're going to see through as we work through the book of James. Let's read what he tells them. James 1, verses 2 through 4 and verse 12. James comes right out of the gate with something very countercultural. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Blessed is the, we're skipping down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Like most wisdom, like most biblical godly wisdom, the guidance that James is giving here is counterintuitive. It goes against the way we think as people. So he begins with a challenge. He says, count it all joy. And you would expect him to follow that up with a bunch of positive stuff. Count it all joy when you graduate. Our sister Jackie just graduated with a master's degree. She should count it all joy that she's done working on that degree. Or count it all joy when you get that big promotion. Or when you get that raise that you've been looking for for years. Count it joy. Or farmer, count it joy when you've had a great harvest and your barns are full. You would expect that to be the case. But the words that follow with James are unexpected. He says to count it all joy when you meet various trials. Consider for a moment the type of trials that that first century church would have experienced. To get a good look at that, we go take a jump into Hebrews chapter 11. The author of Hebrews lays it out for us here. Here's what James was telling them to count as joy. Some were tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two and killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And that's a pretty intense stuff. I want to talk about counterintuitive. He's telling them to count that as joy. In spite of the severity of these things that they're experiencing, James tells them to see their trials as an opportunity to rejoice. Man, counterintuitive. 
But the point is that James isn't asking them to embrace these trials themselves. What he's asking them to embrace is what God is doing through the trials. God has an end goal. And in verse 3, James reveals that there is a greater good being produced through these trials that God wants them to encounter. And the positive outcome through their testing of faith is that their faith would mature. And then James goes on to describe the type of faith that's produced when we face trials of various kinds. It's more than a faith that is simple or a faith that is patient. This is a faith that is almost battle-hardened. This is a faith that is formed through persevering through, through, through these horrible, horrible trials that they have. And it creates a stronger resolve in these Christians. It creates a narrowed viewpoint, almost like a horse with blinders. As we go through these trials, those blinders are tightened so that we focus less on the trials and focus more on the Savior. This is a person who clings to Christ in the face of great trials and sufferings. And then in verse 12, James tells us that our faithfulness to God during these seasons of suffering will be rewarded when he returns. And the crown that he's referring to here is not a kingly or emperor's type of crown. It's not a golden crown encrusted with jewels. Think more along the lines of a crown of leaves given to a runner after successfully completing a race. That's the victor's crown that we're talking about here. That's the crown of eternal life for persevering through the trials that life brings. Our endurance to run the race of life with our eyes on Christ not focused on all of these earthly tribulations, demonstrates the maturity of our faith and comes with the reward of eternal life. And our little church here is a great example of this. We have endured more than our fair share of trials and tribulations this past year. We've persevered through the losses and the pain and the suffering and the trials. And James isn't saying that we should pretend that these trials are easy to take on. Definitely not. But that we should look beyond their difficulty to the spiritual benefit that they bring. God's ultimate goal through this suffering is to produce within us a mature faith. A faith that doesn't just have a bunch of knowledge about who God is, but a faith that takes that knowledge and puts it into practice and lives for the gospel. Church, praise God that our perseverance through all of these trials has not gone unnoticed. We have a community around us of unbelievers who look to us and they watch how we suffer. And they see that there's something different with the way that we suffer and they're able to glorify God through that. The second thing that James explains here to this suffering dispersed church and to us is that surviving suffering requires a right understanding of our sinfulness. Let's look at verses 13 through 15. The first point being that surviving suffering requires that we understand what God is doing behind the scenes. The second one requires that we understand what's going on in our own hearts. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. 
James transitions his focus from helping us understand God's end goal in suffering to helping us have a right understanding of who we are. We will never be able to honor God in our season of suffering unless we have a big picture view of what's going on in our own hearts. We see in verse 13 that God may allow trials to strengthen our faith, but he will never tempt us with sin. That's because his holy nature is so completely opposed to sin, it can't be any part of what he's doing. However, we still ask the question, why am I being tempted? Who is tempting me? So James kind of pulls a trick out of his bag. And as we're here feverishly asking that question, who is tempting me? Who's tempting me? He's raising a mirror for us. So when we ask the question, who's to, oh, it's me. It's my own sinful heart. James wants to make it clear that we are tempted with evil because of the evil that lies within us. He's quoting words of Jeremiah, saying, The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately sick. Who can know it? And it's the sinfulness of our own hearts that drags us away drags us away from God and from his purposes for us when we are tempted. That's what Paul calls the old man, the old man of our hearts, or that remnant sin nature that always exists within us. That is what tempts us. You know, we live in this beautiful blue water delta. Many of you have a boat. Many of you have more than one boat. Some of you have a small armada that would rival that of a little nation and you fish and you fish and you fish and I don't really understand it because I don't have that fishing gene I don't know why it's not part of who I am it's not that I don't like fishing that is great I just it's not something that I devote my time to but if I've learned anything from listening to fishermen fisher women fisher people it's that you tailor the bait to the fish to the circumstance, to the, the conditions that exist on the bottom, if it's murky or weedy, or what kind of fish you're after, how they see the lighting conditions, you change up the bait to match that fish. And it's the hope of the fisherman to match the bait to the fish, to get the fish to grab it. And when the fish comes to the bait and sees that it's something they like and gobbles it, they're yanked away to their doom. So it is when we are tempted by Satan with evil. Evil that's perfectly tailored just to our taste, just what we would like. Just as the fish is taken away with a hook set in its mouth to its certain doom, so also we are dragged away to our destruction by temptation. In verse 15, James switches the metaphor here and he explains that While temptation may be all around us, it's not until we listen to that voice of sin with a desire to do evil that we conceive. Like a seed within the womb of a woman, our temptation grows unhindered unless it's repented of, and eventually it gives birth to sin. And when that sin is fully grown, it leads to death. And many of us wait far too long to do something about it. The time to address your sin is when it's still temptation, before it takes root in your life. Don't hide an embarrassment. Don't try to cover it up. Turn to Christ when you are tempted. Lay it out at his feet and ask him to do a work in your life. 
Praise God that Jesus intercedes for us. Every single day, he sits at the right hand of the Father in intercession for us directly. That's the beauty of the incarnation that we just celebrated at Christmas. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. No, we've got one right here that was born of this earth, and he walked as we walked, and he experienced what we experienced. We have one, a high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Cry out to him, church, when you are tempted. Lay your temptations at your feet. He is willing and able to do a great work in your life and relieve you of them. And this is also where church family comes in. Don't believe for a second that you can operate as a solo Christian and have a vibrant life in Christ. This Christian community that we have here is essential We all need a community of believers around us so when these times of of trial and these times of tribulation come up and when we're tempted, we have somebody to turn to. Have brothers and sisters in Christ in your life that you can bring this to and say, gosh, I'm really struggling with this. Could you pray for me? That's what we're here for. That's the job of the church is to gather around one another. That's what community is all about. And that's what James emphasizes here as we read the last portion in 16 through 18. He says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. There's that community. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Speaking of intimate, close church community, James really loves this young church that's been dispersed. His affection is clearly seen as we read in verse 16. He refers to them as beloved brothers. And he uses this not only to show how much he loves them, but as brothers, he's showing them that they have a common heavenly father. And he wants to reassure them how much God loves them. And verse 17 tells us that this loving Heavenly Father is far from tempting us with evil. He gives good and perfect gifts. He's the perfect giver. He's also the Father of heavenly lights, meaning the stars and moon are blessings from the Lord to us. And as we gaze upon the heavens, we're reminded of the God who created all of that is the God who created us. And he loves us and he cares for us. And light also describes the purity of God's character. He is light through and through. In him there is no variation. There is no shadow. There are no character flaws in God. He is perfect. And we can count on this forever. It stays right there in verse 17. It says, God does not change. And we can take this to the bank. We will change over time. We start small. We get tall, we get bigger, and then at a certain point, we start to get smaller again. With our personalities, our character, we may get smarter. As time ages, we may get more forgetful. We may become more kind. We may get more grumpy. We change. Every creature will undergo physical and character changes, but not God. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
and his character is unchanging, and we can also hold tight that his covenants are unchanging. So this means that he can be fully and completely trusted in times of suffering because we know that he loves us and he says he will work all things out for good. We won't always understand exactly what he's doing, but we need not doubt that his character is unshifting and his motives are always pure for his children. So if we're going to trust in God in that way, we're going to believe that he is unchanging, we can also believe that his word is unchanging. And we can believe what this word says about us. We can believe that this word says that we have a sin problem. We have all sinned. If we're believing God to be unchanging, we believe his word to be unchanging, we have to believe that we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of that sin is death. We have to believe what this book says about that sin problem that is something no matter how good we are, we cannot overcome. But praise be to God that he goes on to say something else we can trust, that Jesus Christ came to be a sacrifice that we can't be, to be a substitute for us in taking care of that judgment. Church, that's what Jesus came for. If you believe that God is unchanging, you believe that his word is unchanging, believe that Jesus Christ is all you need. And when you come to him in faith, you become his child, your sin is forgiven, you become righteous before him, no longer shackled with that sin lineage, you are seen as faultless. So I'll ask you a question. It's the most important question I've asked today, probably the most important question the world has ever known. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? That's it. Have you placed your faith and confidence in Christ alone for salvation? Praise God that he has come to rescue us from our sins. And when we trust in him and believe he is all we need, we are born again. But praise God that being born again is not where it all ends. It's where it starts. When we're born again, his spirit lives within us and becomes that agent of change in our lives as we are molded day after day and experience after experience into the image of Jesus. That's what it's all about. He is the perfecter of our faith. His spirit living within us strengthens us and sustains us through all of the trials that life is going to throw at us. As we close, one final statement. You and I, we were nothing without him. So simply trust in him. Trust in him alone. We can be sure, church, that more trials are coming. His word is very specific about that. In this life, you will have troubles. We've taken our fair share, and there's no reason to believe that it's over. There's more coming. So take his hand personally, knowing that he is able to lead you through the trials that come in life. And through that, he will walk you into deeper and deeper waters of faith with him. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you truly are all that we need. Thank you that before the foundation of the world, you saw our sin issue and you created a way in Jesus Christ to free us. Oh, God, 
This church has suffered. This church has experienced and indeed is experiencing right now so many of these trials that your servant James is talking about. I pray that even in the middle of these trials, as we appear to be at rock bottom looking up, that we would see your hand in all of them. That we would see that you have a plan of emboldening our faith, Father God. Expose to us, we pray, our sinfulness so that we can be drawn more to cling to you knowing how short we fall. And, oh God, I pray that you would continue to reveal to us that you are unchanging, that what you say is true, that you are who you say you are, and that we can cling to you alone in this life and in the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.